My name is Andrew Romans, and welcome to Fireside Chat with a VC. Today, uh, we're talking to my old friend, uh, David Blumberg, founder of Blumberg Capital. And we're going to dive into, I should first say that this is being recorded on April 30th of 2020. Hopefully, the coronavirus lockdown is going to be over very soon, but the truth is we're in the middle of it right now. Um, both David and I are active VCs with, you know, I think we're, we're over 30, 40. David's got something around 60 portfolio companies, and we've been extremely busy from the beginning of uh, adjusting to the environment. So I want to talk about specifics with David about things they're doing to impact revenues, expenses, fundraising from new VCs and runways and all that. But before we get started, David, why don't you introduce yourself? and tell us a little bit about Bloomberg Capital. Sure, thank you, Andrew, for the opportunity. It's great to be with you and to share information with the audience. And if we have some little sparring and repartee, that'd be even better, more interesting for people stuck at home, or maybe by this time, they'll, when they see it, they'll be out. So Bloomberg Capital is a classic early stage tech-focused venture capital firm. I say early stage in that we focus investing in leading rounds or co-leading, typically, seed and A. And we've done some what's called pre-seed now too. So nothing's too early. Um, we generally are the first institutional investor or like to be among that set. Um, we like to work a lot with angels and with smaller groups. And then of course, through the stage of growth, stages of growth of a company, we follow on into series B and often C and so on and work with much bigger companies. And I think one of our specialties is actually helping younger entrepreneurs and newer entrepreneurs scale that growth early in the early stages and grow themselves into large institutional investment consortiums or syndicates. So that's our stage. The sector we invest in is mostly business to business, software as a service model companies. We have some others that are a little bit outside of that, but it's generally enterprise software. Um, it is very geeky intensive. So we like algorithms. We like barriers to entry that are technological. We like um, founders that come from this kind of technological background. Um, that's very strong for us. Our geog and our sectors, I'll go into some detail, um, would be broadly um, financial services, so fintech, enterprise software, predictive analytics, anything that combines artificial intelligence, big data, um, our, our leverage into many domains. Uh, we've started to do things into the healthcare area, leveraging those technologies into logistics, uh, supply chain resilience realm. Um, we have a strong uh, focus in cybersecurity, uh, and that's partly because of our strength in Israel. Our firm geographically operates in the triangle of North America and Israel, and a bit of Europe. So those are the places where we source most of our deal flow. We have our LP relationships mostly there. And then our value added relationships, how we help the companies, spans across the traditional things that VCs do. We help you with initial customer contacts. We have a very unique um, organization called our CIO Council, Chief Information Officer Council. It includes some CISOs, some CMOs, some uh, CEOs and others. And it's really a technology feedback loop. And the mechanism operates whereby these 140 folks on both coasts meet four times a year, New York, San Francisco. We put our CEOs or CTOs in front of them. They explain their product and the CIOs give them feedback on how that product could work in their corporate environment, whether they think the messaging is clear, the pricing is right, the demand is 
latent, et cetera, et cetera. So it's proven marvelous. And many of these same CIOs then join the advisory boards of these companies, get closer involved. Some of them even go on the board of directors. Um, some of them invested in these companies. It's been really a fruitful relationship. So we help with helping you get funded at the next level. We help you with finding early stage customers. We help you with recruiting. We have on board a full-time uh, recruiting and HR specialist. Um, and so that's very helpful. We help with finding technical talent mainly, and then some higher level folks. Um, and then we help with the kind of general strategy, but our philosophy could be boiled down to really being the NASCAR philosophy of venture capital. There are other VCs that call play what I call the marionette handbook where the VC acts like the marionette and pulls the strings of the puppets that are the entrepreneurs. We don't like that model. We think that's inappropriate and arrogant. Our model is NASCAR. You, Mr. and Mrs. Entrepreneur, you drive the race car. We're there to change the oil, fill the gas, bring fans into the stands to coach you around the curves of this racetrack because we've done it a thousand times. And so we have a lot of battle scars and we want to share our experience and frankly, our negative experience so that you don't make the same mistakes. That's great. And David, what, what, generally, what can you disclose about AUM? I know that's a growing number, but sure. uh, it's well, under management. Well, well north of half a billion dollars uh, across uh, five different funds. And we have about 60 companies active in the portfolio at the moment. Again, the majority are in the United States and Canada. There's a good minority chunk in Israel and a few uh, growing companies in uh, Europe. Okay, well, well, you and I have co-invested frequently and we talk a lot, but uh, for the audience, are you actively investing um, since the coronavirus lockdown? Yes, it's very important to understand that venture capital should be and is generally understood as a long-term asset class. So if we make a sports analogy, day traders and people who worry about the public stock markets are like surfers. They're worried about temporary wins and the latest wave and trends and all that fluffy superficial stuff. We're worried about the scuba diving. That's our metaphor. We are low latency or not like long-term uh, deep dive drifts. Uh, watch out. Don't hit the reef. Don't let a shark eat you, but very different time frame. So we're long-term patient investors. Uh, that's our style, at least in the venture capital world. So. That said, crises are to be managed through. They're not to set your hair on fire. We want people to stay calm, manage with rationality, not emotion. Don't be afraid. You will survive this in most cases. If you were gonna die from this, you were probably gonna die anyway, sadly. Um, there are some examples some, uh, some in, in the venture world. There are some differences. Uh, for example, if you run a florist shop or a bar, you know, my heart goes out to you. It's a totally different thing. The government forced you to shut down in most cases. In our world, it's B2B software. It's SaaS model, contractual long-term contracts. We see very few cancellations. Sometimes we see a slowdown in payments. So your receivables might rise uh, over time. You might need some more financing or you might need to have your VCs uh, add some capital to the, to the um, balance sheet so that you can have a longer runway. There are a variety of techniques. We'll talk about that in a moment on how to preserve cash flow and extend the runway. But basically, this is a time for VCs to stay calm, to help support their portfolio, for the CEOs of these portfolio companies and their C-suite to lead by example. And I heard a wonderful man, I think his name is Craig 
Brenneman, something like that, who said that great leaders absorb fear and exude hope. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be Pollyannish. That means you, it does not mean you have to de deny reality or act like the proverbial ostrich, put your head in the sand. No, it means that you face the future squarely on two feet, you take three deep breaths, you size up the situation, do contingency planning. Let me now go to specifics. Across our portfolio of 60 companies, we've spoken with almost all the CEOs, I think now we have, and they all very quickly, about eight weeks ago now, started doing very thorough contingency planning, whereby they analyze what are the resources, what are the risks, what are the opportunities? How do they get their workforce working remotely, quickly, safely, instantly? And most of them did that very quickly because they're digital businesses, they're software developers, they're already in distributed offices. So it was pretty easy for everyone to get distributed and working pretty productively um, from home. Next is how do we take care of our customers? Can we assure certain SLAs, standard um, level of uh, service level agreements? Um, can we keep our processing up at say 99.999%, the proverbial five nine standards, which a lot of terms of agreement uh, require. Um, we're very fortunate that one of our big companies called Credorax, a merchant acquiring bank, has been able to do that um, for payments, cross-border payments, despite the fact that e-commerce demand has spiked, as you can imagine, during this crisis, because people don't go to stores, they now order online. So the fact that we're paying these card-not-present transactions means that our system for payments is under more stress, and we've stayed up and online and reliable when many of our competitors have had to, crashes and outages and so on. So these startup CEOs have generally been able to uh, do contingency planning. That meant get your team up and working, find out what kind of downside there's going to be. Are you going to have a drop-off in sales, a drop-off in um, current business or just new business? Are you going to be able to support the business that you have? And so most of these CEOs did planning of, say, one, three, six-month, nine-month downturn, and then of 10%, 20%, 30%. And they made a grid um, financial model where they could plug in various assumptions as they change, as we move through this wave of flattening the curve and all of the rubrics. Um, and they did a really good job. So the responses were varied. Some companies are thriving and doing better than normal, mostly in the FinTech area, because again, the virtual world has come to the fore. We call it the virtual enterprise. The advent of the virtual enterprise is a phrase that we're starting to use, because we're starting to see that if you are virtual, if you are cloud-based, if you are software-based, if you can deliver your services through a mobile phone or through the internet, you have a really good chance of surviving a weird situation like this, where we can't really go out of our houses, we can't engage in the normal day-to-day -day physical transactions. On the other hand, if you run a restaurant or a chain of restaurants or a chain of hotels, there's not much you can do. We're not investors in most of those kinds of businesses. We're in software. So, our, our CEOs were able to understand the downside, plan for the cash savings, extend their runway, uh, reduce um, expenses that were unnecessary. Um, and I'll give you a few examples. So we break it down into three modes. First, the entrepreneurs, after they did the contingency planning, did three types of plans. They did stabilization. That means get the folks working from home and stable and talk to your customers, talk to your employers, talk to your um, stakeholders. Then it's defensive. How do we prevent 
catastrophic loss? How do we present catastrophic cash flow problems? And then there's offensive. How can we take advantage of this downturn where maybe our weaker competitors are on their backs and we can acquire them or we can uh, grab market share by offering reliable service or lower costs? There are a variety of ways of doing it and we've seen it play out. Two of our portfolio companies out of 60 have already completed successful transaction acquisitions in this period. And I'll give you a, a, a tactical advice. One company we acquired, we did it for zero down, 100% earnout. Mm. So an earnout, the way that works is that we, the buyer, only pay on success of selling of this product that we've acquired. So it was a very low risk deal for us to buy because if the product ultimately didn't work very well, we couldn't sell much, we would pay the sellers zero. Now, it's, it's a high risk to the seller. You know, it, yes. you know, I think you're interviewed in my first book about venture capital and we talk about exits and that um, when you go from running your own company to being acquired and a lot of the exit consideration is tied up in an earnout, you may discover you're quite powerless to integrate into the buyer systems or motivate the sales team for that promise distribution. In fact, they may have even bought you to deep six you and, and uh, you know, you don't really, you're a little powerless, but I think that is smart on how to, how to do more with less. Um, you know, that's not, that's not a bad idea at all. Um, another couple of techniques for entrepreneurs to think about when um, needing to cut costs is Typically, first they cut contractors and folks that were outsourced, and then they try to protect their employees, you know, most. And they tried to give them maybe part-time jobs, or they offered um, sometimes the opportunity to defer salary. When sometimes we would they would propose cuts, I would say, well, can you instead of cutting, can you just defer and tell them you'll pay them later? And in certain countries that's legal, in other countries that's not legal. So you have to check with your lawyer and, and compliance folks to make sure all these things can be done. Uh, and are appropriate in that culture or that that um, jurisdiction. However, there's also another technique which I like, and that is instead of just cutting or deferring salary, is augmenting a salary cut with a grant of stock options, so that the employee is still getting value for the transaction of their time and work, but it's not all cash. It is something of equity uh, for future value. And so we've seen companies do that. And what I'm very grateful for and proud of, and and um, surprised by, if I may say so, is that most of our CEOs led by example. Uh, there's a Hebrew word called aharai, which means after me. And it's the way that commanders in the field are told, taught to lead. They jump into the battle first, and then their troops follow them. Whereas in how many cartoons have we all seen where the general sits at the back and says to the troops, you know, you go out in front. Well, if the leader is leading, then the followers have a lot more confidence that they're going to get out alive and that they're going to be victorious and so on. So that's a strategic principle. So what I liked is that most of our CEOs cut their salaries first. They cut their salaries deepest. They did the deepest sacrifice and then tried to minimize the sacrifice or penalty, not penalty, but the, the deprivation uh, of cutting other people's salaries. So as far as, I mean, I, I often say the number one cause of death for a startup is running out of money. And that's going to be coming from revenues. Um, which you have some control over, but limited control. It's expenses where you've got a lot more control over yes. and there's fundraising yes. or, you know, getting more cash in the door, you know, from somebody else. And I'm not going to talk about government grants or PPP stuff. I think I don't want to put everyone to sleep, but 
what what do you why don't we talk for a minute about um, fundraising? Fundraising yeah. right now, but like we're we're co-investing right now in a deal together that's not disclosed yet. Yes. Um, even before getting to other levers, um, without revealing the name, can you talk about a little bit of the discussion around ESOP and valuation? So ESOP is Employee Stock Option Plan. Yes, sure. Uh, well, it's a very interesting company that we're talking about that too, we're going to be both investing in that interesting thing in this situation is that we are both prior investors and Bloomberg Capital is leading this round even though we're an insider. Now that's unusual and it's not the preferred route. The preferred route, best practice would say insiders should let an outside firm price the new round. Well in this case because of the COVID crisis, because of assorted variables, that wasn't going to be so easy while the company is doing great and it's not really short of cash but we want to put gas in the tank. We want to let them accelerate during this crisis because they're actually doing better than expected. And we want to let them thrive. So we want to put in more money. So the entrepreneurs came to us and said, well, we thought we could go outside. We can't seem to round up the outside leads. We have a lot who will follow. Lumber Capital, would you lead? You're used to leading. You do this well. You've done it in the past. Would you lead again? And so we said, sure. So we're putting in a minority of the total money in this case, we're putting in 25% of the total round. Often a lead would put in 50% of the round, or sometimes even more, or sometimes it's going to be less. But 25% is rather small out of a total round. But it's, it's still a big chunk of money for us. It's going to be millions of dollars. And we've already put in millions, so it's a big investment in this company. And it, on that hand, it's a, on that score, it's a sign of our confidence. Frankly, it's not a desperation matter at all. This is not a company that can't get funded. It's a company that we want to put in more money now and we feel we're getting good value. And the management was willing to take that degree of dilution because they said, yes, if we take a little bit of dilution now, but we have a bigger war chest and we can deploy it now when prices are down, we're going to do better in the future over the long term. So again, I want to emphasize, I think Andrew, you do a very good job of this too, is that entrepreneurs and VCs, please take the long-term view of things. The, The stock market is not the right criteria to look at when you're measuring success in the VC market. We, we measure in years, not in weeks, not in months. Uh, so that's an important point. And then to your, to your specifics, um, we're going to round out this with other insiders who are coming along. That makes us and the management feel good that there's a very strong support, almost unanimous support from the insiders to invest in this round. And then we're going to fill in with large, substantial followers that maybe are corporates or family offices that are interested to invest, but they just don't know how, they're not used to leading. That's not their typical modus operandi, but they wanna be involved in the company. Yeah, and we're talking to some of our RLPs from Europe, Japan, US about um, joining that syndicate. Um, What was interesting about that was, David, that you were pushing hard for making sure that the employee stock option plan is sufficient for attracting and retaining talent in the long term. Um, yeah, I can tell you that we had a little debate with the uh, entrepreneurs that went back and forth. We were pushing for what is called an enhancement or a re-upping of the ESOP uh, pool because we said to them, look, you're going to be taking advantage of this downturn in the economy to hire some more people, to improve the team, to hire, quali- hire quality people. Um, some people have been let go, perhaps, that were not performing. And so now when we rehire them during or on the, out- on the other side of this crisis, We're going to want to hire even stronger people with maybe higher salary requirements. So we want to have more equity to be able to also give them as part of their compensation package. 
So we said to them, as part of this uh, round of financing, we want you to re-up the ESOP pool by a number of percentage. And they were reticent because that would come out of the management as, as more dilution, uh, partially. And we negotiated back and forth, back and forth. And finally, um, we did say to them, look, we really have to do this way because it might be true you're cutting some of the staff now so you get some shares back into the pool, but you're going to be hiring more within a few months as things improve. So we're going to need to use that. So let's re-up. And we came to a fair compromise. So there's two things I want to make sure our VC and entrepreneur listeners are getting. One is that there's a necessity to cut costs to extend runway yes. in a downturn where we don't know how far down this elevator is going. So that's right. The uncertainty is when. When is this going to, you know, get better? Um, so when you did cut some people, it actually brought some unvested options back into the ESOP. That's right. So you actually naturally retanked from that necessity. And then there was, uh, you know, deciding what's right, right for the future. The second thing I want to make sure listeners are hearing is that in normal times, you've got support of early stage investors like 7BC and Bloomberg Capital, and we're going to raise a new round, ideally priced by a new investor. Yes. Rather than existing investors just upping, you know, you know their numbers by put, assigning a big valuation. Uh, so two things. One, I think that normal textbook is you want to say to a new investor, the insiders who have been with me for a while have agreed to put up up to a third to 50%, but they want to make room for the new investor. That's what right. would be ideal for you? And you've got these guys ready to put good money into it after they've learned all the truth about this specific you know, startup. So that's right. ideal. What's interesting now is that um, you guys are breaking from classic strategy in these you know, unprecedented times by saying, actually, we're going to make this happen by you know, leading 50% of the first close, if we can say that, um, which is putting it on the table yes. and being willing to be a 25% lead. And I think a lot of the insiders like us came in on that. So segue there. Um, we already knew a lot about that company. It did well before COVID, better during COVID, and will benefit from a bump to be on a bigger base post-COVID. Right. Um, what about the deals you haven't met yet? Um, you know, so you said you're investing in new companies, but so one, you are investing in new companies that you're not already in. That's yeah. not everybody. Um, I think it's fair to say a lot of VCs don't have that policy. We have the same. But what about investing in a startup that you've never met before in person? Um, you know, I enjoy our Zoom calls, but we already met many times in the real world. Are you, are you willing to invest in a company you've not met in person? Yes, and we've just done so twice. We've had two purely Zoom email phone call encounters, diligence programs, negotiations, and closings. So we did one in the telehealth area, and we did one in the supply chain logistics area. Both happen to be really timely and helpful to the world of COVID, but they'll be strong in any circumstance, we believe. Good teams, we um, knew the area, we had prepared mind. We uh, have a value-added network through our CIO council and extended um, co-investors and so on that we know and like and are gonna be moving forward on. And then during the diligence, we were able to get real FaceTime with the customers of these companies 
and have this extended kind of dialogue on Zoom. And that was, that was great. Usually we don't have Zoom calls with, with customers. Usually we just have phone calls. And you know, now that I can see you, Andrew, I can see when you smile, when you frown, there is a lot of imagery and, and, and information that's shared in the visual cues of the face. So it's not necessarily that we need to be in the same room, but seeing one another is more helpful than just being on the phone. So it's kind of an interesting yeah. dynamic. I'm finding that um, you, what you're saying, what both sides are saying audibly changes from what they're seeing and you can develop a relationship with somebody on a video conference call, um, even you know, beyond just uh, you know, you know, you know, the audio without a question. Um, okay, great. Now I want to move from the startups to the VC asset class and then end about the exit, you know, impact on the exit marketplace with, you know, in this kind of lockdown, no travel thing we're dealing with. But if, if we can't meet people in person and companies can't come to Silicon Valley to meet us here, um, and there's no international travel, um, you know, what, on the on measuring of you know revenues expenses financing what are you recommending in general for runway um is there okay. a specific number of months that you think that you know most startups out there should adhere to in normal times and these unusual times yeah our portfolio has on average um at least 15 months of of cash so we feel pretty good because we don't feel this crisis will last in the acute phases, uh, 15 months. And we think that financing of more normal uh, vintage will come back within that period. It might not be perfect, it might not be boom times, but we think it's kind of a, a V or modified J curve, some kind of sharp down, because it was government enforced. This is, let's, it's a good time, if I can segue for a moment, sure. compare this to prior crashes, okay? So let's take the 2001, three, that crash was very, very concentrated in the tech sector. It was heavily overbought. Um, the PE ratios were absolutely insane at the mm -hmm. time across the board. Uh, think that people were not really counting reality. They weren't counting any kind of earnings. They were counting eyeballs because it was the dawn of the internet. And people just said, well, if you get the eyeballs, you'll figure out how to monetize later. Liquid fast. I mean, they're going to get liquid fast is what they were doing, I think. And right, a lot of those companies were sort of pump and dump. I mean, they would go to a billion valuation and then they were, you know, they would sell off and, 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 and crash. We didn't invest in those kinds of companies. That's not our style. I mean, we're B2B, we're not B2C so much. We're not trendy things. We're more boring, geeky stuff that yields real productivity to a CIO, to a CISO, to a CMO. So different kind of thing. And um, I'm actually proud to say that all of the unicorns we invested in back in those days are still strong companies or sold for kind of north of the billion kind of value we had four of those at that period. In any case, so the 2001 crisis was very tightly focused in this tech sector. And so a lot of the rest of the world did not get nearly as affected. So that's one thing. Then let's take the 2008-9. It was a financial meltdown. Again, it was, um, it did impact the consumer a lot because there were a lot of debt related um, things for, for mortgages, which caused a lot of people to go upside down in their balance sheet and, um, you know, caused a, a terrible return. And then our um, coming out of that was very slow. That was one of the slowest recovery, um, I think, in, 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 in post-World War history. So this is a very different kind of a, a recession because it was imposed by the government very dramatically. 
And it looks like the government is throwing a lot of capital, more than anybody ever, and it's worldwide, uh, at it to try and keep people employed as best as possible or to compensate them as best as possible uh, so they don't lose total income. So we're going to see certain areas very hard hit, entertainment, um, you know, Florida, Restaurant. bars, restaurants, travel. But the software world is not so hurt. The B2B world is not so hurt. The fintech world is not so hurt. Um, consumer consumer um, goods like Procter & Gamble and Unilever, those businesses are doing great. Amazon is doing great. And then we have to think about really the upside. Where will the businesses of the future benefit from this? And it seems to, I think you and I have talked about this offline, Andrew, that there are a lot of things that will always become more virtual because of the catalyst of this crisis. So telemedicine will spring forward as much more acceptable and palatable to people. Um, to, uh, paying, for, um, paying for things at the store with a virtual contactless payment mechanisms will be better than point of sale or using a traditional credit card or cash. Um, we have logistics that are playing an incredible role in keeping all of us supplied with the essentials. And so the supply chain resilience is important. And so software that can watch end to end from port to destination, intermodal, real time with predictive analytics, all those kind of things start to come to the fore. And in our companies, we've invested in that realm. We've seen sales cycles actually shrink. Yeah. So, so in some ways, we've talked about this offline that the COVID crisis now and the COVID economy that reopens are accelerating the digitization of workflows. Yeah. So it's digitized. All we've been doing from the beginning was to digitize human workflows, you know, get more data, run it through AI and ML and make more automated right. you know, decisions and, and things. Whereas the adoption of that in the enterprise and the consumer is likely to be accelerated. We, we too are seeing shorter sales cycles on converting a POC to an enterprise or re-upping or new leads. But in some cases, we are seeing um, everything's on hold. And yeah. yes. there's a whole lot of people both saying- Both ways, for I mean, sure. Let's be honest, there's a whole lot saying, uh, we're waiting to see how this is going to impact us. Yeah, um, in, in general. We had international telcos ready to invest, which we were loving because we could put stuff on their handsets and they buy everything that you invest in. And the telcos were saying back to us, we want to see in how this, we got to see how this impacts our business. We're in all these different countries. Um, you know, so that's where I think that um, startups should tank up to 24 months runway. Um, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not opposed to that at all. I think it's yeah. great if you can do it. I'm saying the, the reality is that our average portfolio across 60 of them is 15 months. The larger companies in the portfolio tend to have even more because they raised in the last two years and last two years were very good to successful companies. They were able to raise large rounds. So they're sitting on war chests and they generally didn't take those PPP loans. Smaller companies, which are you know, in a more precarious position, often did take those loans. And um, you know, it's probably a good program um, for certain companies. I wouldn't say that everyone should take it and I wouldn't say that everyone should not take it. It's a case by case basis. We've seen companies take it as a lifeline that, that you know, they were almost shutting down and they managed to get the PPP. But let's, uh, let's, let's move forward. So before talking about the venture capital asset class, um, you know, are there any pivots that you've seen? I mean, pivot is another one that's not your classic, you know, running out of cash thing. But, you know, we, we've seen a couple of companies that were getting hit the hardest that all of a sudden offered 
you know, food delivery of your groceries or, you know, I won't go into hours, but maybe just help people understand that um, you're not working hard, hard enough if you've not gotten creative, maybe. Exactly. So I'll give a couple examples. One is a company that's done some pivoting, but mainly its business is booming because everyone is locked at home. It's a company called Saucy, based in Southern California, but they deliver alcohol to your home within 30 minutes, or that's the goal. And uh, so you just don't want to go out and drag home those big, heavy bottles. Well, they'll deliver it to you, compliant, safe, insisted on the ID for the buyer. Everything's very strictly enforced. But that's seen a, a demand spike. I think their business has doubled recently. And they're also being asked by um, groups to deliver uh, goods other than alcohol. So now food and necessities as well. So we can use our workforce you know, much more intensively throughout the whole day. So that's one. Another one is our company called Wunder Mobility, based in Germany, but operating all over the world, um, which offers a SaaS model software suite to help manage intermodal human transport, meaning we manage fleets of scooters and fleets of bikes and shuttle services and car parking services and rental services, all with software. We don't have people involved in any of it. It's all about managing where the vehicle is, matching it with a rider or a driver or a delivery route, et cetera, et cetera, maintenance, scheduling, all of that. So our business is also pretty strong. There are parts of it that are weaker. The part of selling new equipment to say a municipality that wants to start a new bike program or scooter program, that part is down right now, but other parts are up. And some of the interesting um, pivots we've seen among our customers is that customers that were running um, scooter fleets or something like that are now starting to start to offer delivery services. Hmm. And because they have the scooters, there's not so much demand to go to work, but they're taking the gig economy workers, getting them a scooter and saying, turn yourself into a delivery person right. uh, and car rental the same way. So there can be very interesting uh, pivots. They tell me a funny story that one of their marijuana delivery uh, clients in Canada is now starting to deliver food. So you can have the marijuana and you get the munchies and you have the they, food. They go too. hand in hand, don't they? Well, so, so David, let's uh, move on to the venture capital asset class and we can close on exits. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, how the downturns of maybe 01, 08 impacted the venture capital asset class very quickly. Anything we've learned from that and with this different you know, economic downturn, let's say, um, how does it impact uh, the business for Bloomberg Capital specifically? How does it touch your business? How do you view it touching mine and that of the broader venture capital ecosystem? Well, I'll go right inside the inside the beltway, deep into the bowels of venture capital work. Today was our team meeting where we discussed valuations and our quarterly report is just due for our investors. And one of the big issues was, do we say, how do we value this portfolio this month? It's a very strange time because it's such a sharp downturn and probably there's gonna be some upside. Do we mark companies down, even though the companies are doing fine, but their comparables in the public markets have crashed 25, 30%, 50%, something like that. So it's, it's very difficult. And we thought maybe what we'll do is we'll show the conservative markdown and say, this is what comparables would say we should mark this. But actually the company, if we normalize it, we think they're kind of doing okay or even well, we'd actually put it here as our common sense um, mark of value. Let them see those as, as a boundary uh, goal, goal posts and it's somewhere in between most likely. 
So that's one example. Now, I said we're open for business. We are taking in business plans. We are meeting entrepreneurs, not at the same pace as we were, you know, two months ago, but we're trying to keep it open. Most people are self-selecting not to come to us because they think most VCs are closed. Lumberg Capital is open. Seven, <laughs> seven VC is open. We know that, right? So we're willing to do deals with you and, and you with us and so on. Um, I think it's a great time to invest. The, some of the best companies in history have been started during downturns. We've invested in three of our unicorns, um, Double Verify, Nutanix, Hootsuite, companies like that, Braze, during downturns. And then famous companies like, I think, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, a number of others were also started during tough times uh, as well. So don't give up hope, entrepreneurs. Watch your cash flow. Make sure you have between, say, 12 to 24 months of cash, if you can at all hold on to it. Treat your employees well, treat your customers well, because people will have a very long memory. If you cut corners, if you really screw people over, they'll remember, and, and it can go unheard. We've been on the downside. We've seen VC firms that have not treated their fellow VCs well. Just recently, we got squashed down by a big, famous Sand Hill Road VC in a company where we've been loyal supporters for you know, almost a decade. And, and it felt bad. Um, you know, it, it's, what, it's what happens. Um, so what I'd say to the entrepreneurs is choose your VCs wisely. They're, it's for good and for ill. It's like a marriage. It's for in illness, sickness and in health. And this is a time of literal sickness and we need to take care of each other because so, we're all in it together. And if we take advantage and, and, and act badly, act dishonorably, it's not going to come come out well in the wash. So, anyway, that's a little bit of a moral lesson for everybody. Yeah, I think I, I think it's fair to say that um, in boom economies, valuations and terms are um, you know they're stretching the valuation yeah. they can get. They, they overshoot on the upside, and they probably overshoot on the downside. And that's why I like to buy on the downside, and right. I'm a little more cautious to to buy on the upside. So hopefully we're not investing at nonsense valuations during this current climate. And as not day traders, but long-term company builders in a few years time, when we typically would exit that delay between investment and exit, the economy would have recovered and the valuation we got in was lower than had it been the height of a boom, boom, boom period. So I think it makes it attractive. I also would say that if the supply of startups looking to increase their runway is increasing and the demand from the VCs is going down yes. from a lot, then those that are active have a little bit of a once in a lifetime opportunity to yes. be active and participating. Um, while in better, in better quality companies, we'll be able and to. And there's a bit of austerity that you don't, yes. we had a portfolio company in New York city that was, had a policy that anyone can Uber home every day. And it was, you know, we didn't, we, we found this out later, but, you know, that kind of, you know, chef designed lunch stuff is the first stuff to kind of get measured down a bit. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I think it should. I'm not for extravagance. It, it always bothered me. I grew up maybe more hard scrabble. I put myself through college on scholarships and, de and, and student loans and working. And my parents gave me a little bit, but, um, you know, I just don't think we should be entitled and act self-satisfied or arrogant. We should be really humble, earn it before we show it, um, something like that. And I know the world has gotten a little bit fluffy in the past couple of years 
And there's a lot of money around, a lot of money around, a lot of entrepreneurs promising stuff. But um, so let's let's tie up on exits. So I know you guys have been, you know, almost benefiting from the current environment and been making acquisitions at the portfolio Mm -hmm. layer. I know that in 01 to 03 downturn and then kind of 08, you know, which was shorter, that my investment banker friends were struggling when people didn't want to sell. Sure. Uh, you know, at this dip in valuations, London property prices, you could say the same with the credit crunch. And then there was this pent up demand of people who wanted to get out, who deserved to get out or wanted to buy. And then there was this huge, you know, banner year of when the investment bankers just did two years worth of deals in six months. What, what do you expect on this one? What are you seeing on exits? Okay. First of all, I, I don't want to give a Pollyanna picture. There's some struggling. Some of our portfolio companies are going to have much lower growth than they had planned for, you know, at the beginning of January. A couple of our companies are struggling. One does the relocation in the moving market. They are having a terrible year compared to what they had forecast, but they have plenty of cash. They have a great management and they'll survive. Another company uh, sells to the business travel business. Obviously, it's tough for business travel right now but we will get through this. They have enough cash, you know, they're gonna be all right too. But I, my heart goes out, I'm empathetic, and I think both of us are, for anybody that's struggling, and we don't mean to make it sound like paradise. This is a tough time for everybody. I don't think this world has ever been through anything vaguely like this historically. And I'm not just talking about the health and, and life and death issues, I'm talking about people losing their jobs, their businesses that they've worked for decades to build. So it's tragedy, however, there are steps that, again, the venture capital world is pretty good at helping people get through some of these crises by managing cash, by um, tightening up your budget, by um, delaying, for example, certain things. You can do rent negotiations, rent holdbacks. A lot of landlords are being very flexible right now, uh, and that's often a big piece of your rent. I think you can renegotiate a lot of your software contracts. Um, we're seeing that, or at least ask for payment terms. Um, sometimes you can. Uh, grab market share by going, if your prices are cut, say, well, okay, then I'm going to go after my competitors, customers, um, while I'm at it. If I can't sell to, you know, um, people that are new, I can at least try and steal customers that know about the product and know that it's a valuable service. So there are a lot of things one can do. We've talked about various techniques. Again, if I can leave on a, a, a note here is that the M&A business that you asked about uh, will come back. It is tough for right now. Uh, some of the companies that are selling now are going to only get, we're gonna, they're going to yield us maybe what we call an aqua hire return. So we'll maybe get our money back. Um, so if the companies are weak, this crisis exaggerates the weakness. If the companies are strong, it probably exaggerates their strength. And some odd situations are happening because of the virtual world we're living in now, the enforced quarantine, all that. It means that e-commerce thrives compared to physical retail. And work from home and things like Zoom, uh, video conferencing thrive instead of physical office space and, and commercial office space. So these are some weird anomalies right now. Um, you know, terrible to own a rental car agency now. But if you have the cash flow, if you can maintain yourself over to the other side, I have great confidence that the world will come back. It's come back through every other recession. Right. This, this recession is Good. The, the venture back car rental company might have used this as an opportunity to be smarter their spending, literally stop paying rent and that kind of thing with, you know, some of our guidance. And then when things reopen, they, they got rid of their competitor. They're almost heading into monopoly world. 
Um, and it, that's the market share that you're talking about. Yes. Um, you, David, tell me, I know, I know you guys did two acquisitions at the portfolio level, but you want to talk about that one? That, sure. That one. There's a fascinating example. One of our portfolio companies, maybe I'll just leave off which one it is, uh, did a deal where they bought a company in another country and it was a great software product for a software acquirer. And the product originally was to be paid for with, I forget, something like a few million dollars purchase price. And during this crisis, we renegotiated the price to be 100% earnout. So we had $0 up front, and it's all based on performance. If this product sells as they claim it should, and we, will, we have every incentive to make it sell, we will then pay them a percentage of those revenues up to the millions of dollars that we um, agreed on. But it, it, was, it took away all the risk for us. Mm. Which is enormous. Mm. We, there is a lot of risk right now. The world is quite volatile. We don't know the shape of the um, virus uh, mortality rates and infection rates, and we don't know the shape of the economic downturn and so on. So therefore, we said to them, look, it's so volatile, we either have to uh, abrogate the deal and do nothing, or we're happy to go forward, but it's got to be super low cost for us up front. And if it works out, you'll get plenty of payout. And they said, we'll do that. That's a real put your money where your mouth is, um, you know, thing. And, and when I talk about M&A and earnouts, I say that um, if in that case, it's probably fine. But if you sell to a big purchaser, a big, big balance sheet buyer, and there's a heavy component that the exit consideration is in the earnout, you may go from being the CEO who had control of your sales to being helpless to integrate into their yeah. system. And that some of the money up front, you know, should, should be valued more than this burnout, uh, which you really lose some control of your ship. Um, well, you, you've, said it very, very, you've said it very well. This was based on mutual respect and mutual trust, but there was an element of risk that was flipped from the buyer side to the seller side. And you've been on the other side of that as well when you were selling to a big company. And I'm, I've been advising companies on that same basis that we want to minimize the earnout because we don't know how they'll be able to sell. Maybe a big company doesn't succeed in selling the, what the software startup knows intimately. So it, it can go both ways. But if you say to me, what are some non-obvious techniques that startups can use to benefit in a downturn? One of them is making acquisitions at better than average terms if you're the stronger um, of the parties. Well, David, thank you so much. I look forward to doing the next fireside chat right in front of an actual fire in person sure. when we're allowed to uh, meet in person again. Um, I think I speak for both of us that uh, we are very keen to hear from um, entrepreneurs that are raising their funding rounds right now. We're both yes. open for business. They can find you at Bloomberg Capital. You can find me at 7bc.bc or just Google Andrew Romans and you'll get connected quickly. Um, we're also actively seeking to hear from large corporations or yes. family offices that are often like corporations, they're conglomerates, they have assets that can partner with our startups. Those are the people we love to uh, get in touch with. So please reach out to us and thank you so much. David, have a great day. See you Thanks, soon. Andrew. Be healthy. Yeah, and you. Bye for now. Bye-bye.